Thanks for tuning in. I'm Shelby. I'm Renee. And you're listening to The Creepy Burrito. Fuck yeah. about creepy fucking shit yeah (laughs) if you're listening to this now congratulations you have survived the holidays you're a winner and bringing this year 2020 to an end i figured it's been a minute since our last behind the whore so i am covering one of both of our favorite fucking movies number one ghost ship yes Mudvayne music. I, I stand, not crawling, not falling down. I, I bleed <laughs> for no one. <laughs> the demons <laughs> that drag me down. Wow! <laughs> so, so good. For real though, like literally best fucking like song you could ever drive a fucking boat to in the rain right <laughs> it's that it's fucking song fucking magnificent beautiful chef kiss love it Mwah. and i can remember so clearly when it came out circa 2002 yep. when powder blue and silver lipstick was in hair frosting the year that justin timberlake and britney spears broke up just to give you like a full reference mm-hmm. and i was like eight at the time when i first saw it on the shelf at my local blockbuster dating ourselves there <laughs> right the vhs cover had this sick ass ship with the skull and it was like the dopest thing i've ever seen <laughs> and then promptly begging my mother <laughs> to get it yeah of which it worked yeah If you've never seen the movie Ghost Ship, we both recommend it. But this episode, it will have spoilers. Mm -hmm. So this is your fucking spoiler alert. Don't listen anymore. Pause. Go find a copy of Ghost Ship. (laughs) Watch it. Watch it right now. Do you have Amazon Prime? You probably fucking do. Rent it. It's $3. (laughs) $3 is so worth it. The movie, it opens up. And a glamorous captain's ball aboard the SS Antonia Graza in 1962. The tune of Sense of Fine playing in the sea breeze. Everyone's on the dance floor when a thin metal wire snaps, slicing and dicing up. <laughs> slicing and dicing up the dance floor. The passengers are cut in half, pants falling, top halves sliding and landing on the floor. They're just trying to piece themselves together. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's just the best opening ever. It's so sick. The grisliest opening. The dopest. Lady, she's like grabbing her bottom half. She is. Like there it. is, um, fun fact, if you watch really closely, there is a small flaw in it. So one of the ladies, before the wire even snaps, you can see the line of blood in her dress oh, before really? it actually goes. Yeah. Oh. If you watch the movie enough times, <laughs> over and over again, you can see some flaws. Huh. But anyways, I digress. 
Young Katie, seemingly short enough to escape the tragic fate, but as she takes a step back, realizes that the captain that she was dancing with just moments prior had been opened up at the mouth as his head just swivels from his body and lands on the floor. Ah! <laughs> so scary! This opening scene, whether it was scientifically accurate or not, is one of the greatest in horror film history. Yep. Remo. I remember watching it for the first time and was just so like... Mind-blowing? Yeah. It was just sick. Yeah. Because you don't understand what's happening. No. At first until it's like, thing, 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 and everyone's getting chopped in half and you're like, what? And then and then just the, the lady and, and her arm... Or that reaching was the dude's and grabbing. Ooh, yeah, and like it just crazy. Or the guy's pants just fall down. Yeah. And then his like tum tums out. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people like had mixed feelings about that initial scene because of the cuts being in different places. Yeah, and whatever. Right. It's a horror movie. It was fucking beautiful. I'm not watching this horror movie for the realistic accuracy yeah i'm i'm watching it for the gore and for the thrill fun fact originally everybody on the dance floor was supposed to be decapitated Hmm. but the studio thought that it would be too horrific (laughs) not sure how like the torsos and squirming bodies on the floor trying to like put them together back together is less horrific but I mean, it, the end result was fine with me. I feel like that is actually like a creative fuck you. Like, oh, we can't decapitate everybody. All right, that's fine. We'll just slice them in half, but we'll make it 10 times worse. More. Yeah. I like it the way that it is. Yeah. I thought it was good. Anyway. We digress. Moving on. In 2006, Mythbusters took a crack at the theory if the snap cord on its own could slice and dice the dance floor in an episode called Killer Cable Snaps. They used a 5-8 inch cable at 30,000 pounds of force of tension, was unable to cut a pig into, or even cut into it. It did cause, like, potentially lethal injuries, but not to the extent of slicing one pig, let alone a whole entire dance floor of people. Yeah. When that didn't work, they started tinkering around, as they do on the show, and went further by adding a smaller cable at the end of the larger one to create, like, a whipping effect, Mm -hmm. and loop the cable around the pig itself. There was no outcome where the cable could cut through the pig with the cable's own inertia alone. Only when they tried to tie the cable around the pig before tightening it is when they could actually get enough force to slice and dice a little piggy. <laughs> Make some bacon. Going to the market. Going to the market. <laughs> that makes sense. And again, not watching it for the accuracies behind. Right. Like some people talk shit on the movie or that the scene is, oh, it's not believable. But spoiler alert to anyone that missed it. Jack is a fucking demon. And we'll get into that in a little bit more detail a little bit later on in this episode, so. Spoiler alert inside the spoiler alert. <laughs> more spoilers. <laughs> you see a hand pull the lever at mm-hmm. the beginning, and I'm not sure if everyone, like, put that together. I'm pretty sure it would be Jack's hand yeah. that pulls it, or that his own dark powers would be involved in creating enough force to take everyone on the dance floor out, because he's a fucking demon. He's a demon. And being as obsessive 
as I am, sense of fine that was playing for that opening scene. In case you don't speak Italian, like myself, I had to look up the lyrics. I was wondering, why? Why that song? So, endless. You drag our life without a moment's breath. To dream. To be able to remember what we have already lived. Endless. You are an endless moment. You have no yesterday. You have no tomorrow. Everything is now in your hands. Great hands. Endless hands. I don't care of the moon. I don't care of the stars. You are to me the moon and stars. You are to me the sun and sky. You are everything to me. Everything I want to have. Endless. I couldn't find the specific reason that they would use this song to open the movie. Whether it was just to fit the cruise line aesthetic, having an Italian entertainer like Francesca Rotadini, but if you ask me, those lyrics, if you think about it, almost sounds like the ship's lament to all the souls that it holds. Like they're trapped there endlessly. Yeah. Especially the, you are an endless moment. You have no yesterday. Yeah. You have no tomorrow. Yeah. Everything is in your hands now. I'm glad that you uh, went into that because that's interesting. I went very deep. I didn't find anything on it, like why they picked it. The funny thing about it, so Francesca Rettandini, Mm -hmm. she only speaks Italian. Mm -hmm. So that gives you the impression that they picked her specifically. The director, Steve Beck, had to actually have a translator on set. So that explains, like, why her character was pretty speechless. I mean, I guess you could say they just wanted an Italian singer because it was supposed to be, like, an Italian cruise line. Cruise line. But that song specifically, I feel like it holds meaning. I also didn't know that she was, she could only speak Italian. Yeah, she could only speak Italian. So that's why, like, later on in the scene, she doesn't speak at all, but... No. she only The only time that she speaks is when she's talking to the crowd. She's like, oh, that's it. Oh, that's it. Like, Yeah, she only speaks Italian yeah. one-liners. Yeah. In the words of Ursula, don't underestimate the importance of the body language. Ha! And that couldn't be more spot on. This sexy ghost was able to seduce Greer, who was engaged to some faceless girl we didn't see in the movie, who was just at home... And decides that you can't cheat with a dead girl. (laughs) Yeah. So all it took was a little bit of titties. Literally. And, I mean, like, sound logic. It did lead to his plummeting death. Right, so, like, karma. Karma. (laughs) Ghost Ship was based off a screenplay, Chimera, written by Mark Hanlon in January of 1996. The original script was more of a psychological thriller rather than the bloody supernatural horror film that it had become. The storyline still focused around the four members of the salvage crew who were stranded aboard a ghost ship that they were scuttling. When the night comes, the crew succumbs to madness and start to turn against each other. Murphy was originally the main killer, and he becomes obsessed with retrieving gold, which ultimately leads to his demise when the ship runs into the rocks and starts sinking, and the weight of the gold that he's carrying weighs him down to his watery grave. Much like in the movie, Katie helps Epps to escape the ship as the sole survivor. So whenever the film adaptation came around for Ghost Ship, the cast members signed off based off of the original draft of Chimera, and... They were pretty pissed with the 
artistic liberties producer Joel Silver had taken to turn the movie into a slasher. And they didn't fucking know about it until they showed up to start filming. Oh, that's kind of shitty. Yeah. Juliana Margulies, the character that plays Ebb, she had disowned the film. Her and her actors couldn't back out of it because they were contractually bound. So they had to go through with filming of Ghost Ship. Ghost Ship early on was conceived to be like a mashup of The Shining meets The Titanic. In The Shining, upon arriving at the Overlook Hotel, during their empty house walkthrough, Wendy says, it's like a ghost ship. So that's how they try to, like, tie it all in. In the original screenplay, Chimera, there was more comparable materials than what had actually remained in the final result of the film because it had this similar psychological breakdown aspect where the longer that they were there, the more influence the hotel or ship had on the tenants. In Chimera, there was a room 400 that acted as room 237 from The Shining, kind of comparable there, where most of the paranormal activities had centered around. The Shining director, Stanley Kubrick, was fascinated with the evil side of human nature and beautifully portrayed that perspective as Jack is hunting down his family in the hotel. The inspiration is still there in the movie Ghost Ship because it's still based off of that dark side of human nature, specifically using gold to bring out the worst amongst the crew. That greed would bring them to do the unthinkable. There was a piece of the Chimera script that was too gruesome for the movie. Originally, the teen ghost Katie had a much more tragic ending than being hung in her closet. In the original script, 16-year-old Katie was sexually assaulted next to the dead bodies of her mother and younger sister while her father was being held down to watch. Until she is chopped up with an axe. Oh, yeah. Bit gruesome. There is still like a slight implication in the movie when the men drag her into the room and the door slams shut flash forward to her hanging body in the closet. But the movie doesn't specifically spell out what happened behind the closed doors. Right. And made it a little less gruesome with her family members not being aboard the SS Antonia Graza since she was on her way to New York to be reunited with her family. There wasn't too much to compare the movie to the Titanic besides the voyage to New York and coming to a catastrophic end. Ironically enough, if it weren't for the sinking of the Titanic, the Antonio Graza would have went down due to the tear in the hull and deteriorated by the time that the Arctic warrior had arrived 40 years later. But the sinking prevention standards that were put into place for ocean liners following the sinking of the Titanic is what saved the ship from going under. The gorspiration, yes, I made up the word gorspiration. I like it. I like it too. The gorspiration for Ghost Ship came from a movie poster for the 1980s film Death Ship. And this is free on Prime right now. Okay. If you guys are into it. It had that cheesy 80s gore that I just can't help but to love. Mm -hmm. It kind of has a slow beginning, opening on the captain's ball, which is similar to Ghost Ship, minus the fact of everyone being chopped in half. Then the ship wrecks, it goes down, there's flashes of shit just exploding in the water, <laughs> glass breaking, and like nonsensical crashing from every direction. <laughs> Windows exploding before anything even happens. It's great. <laughs> I love 80s movies. Right. It's my fucking favorite. 
A small group survived drifting on a wooden draft until they came across a big black ship with apparently no one on it. Which is pretty fishy, especially when it starts operating all on its own. People fucking start dying. There's glimpses of how they die before it actually happens. From showers of blood, poisoning, waterboarding, freezers full of dead bodies. It's great. And eventually, they unravel that the ship was actually a Nazi interrogation ship. Oh. The captain starts going apeshit, falls into the cogs where he is crushed to death. The movie has a somewhat happy ending. The family of four is rescued from their little life raft, but the death ship just still cruises on. Now, jumping back to Ghost Ship. Mm -hmm. Upon their discovery of the Antonia Graza, Murphy tells the tale of another ghost ship. Any sign of what might have happened? How she got here? That's a $64 million question, isn't it? You believe a ship called the Marisons? She was a twin-masted brigantine out of Charleston, South Carolina during the Civil War. She was bound for London with her cargo of cotton in her hold. Anyway, two months after she set sail, she was sighted by a group of fishermen off Tripoli. She was doing 12 knots an hour in a stiff breeze. Something wasn't quite right, they didn't know what. So they went on board. You know what they found? Nothing. No passengers, no crew, no captain. No sign of distress. 59 days after the last entry in the log, that ship had traveled four and a half thousand miles across the open ocean, past the rock of Gibraltar, and into the Mediterranean Sea at full sail. And nobody at the helm. What do you make of that? Gosh. Can you smell that? I smell bullshit. <laughs> That's right. It was kind of bullshit. (laughs) The actual tale of Mary Celeste is a little bit different. The Mary Celeste set sail on November 7th of 1872 from New York Harbor heading to Genoa, Italy, being led by Captain Benjamin Briggs, accompanied by his wife Sarah and their two-year-old daughter Sophia, leaving his son Arthur home with his grandmother so that he could stay in school. The captain had handpicked seven crewmen that were described as first-class sailors. This voyage was the first for the newly renovated Mary Celeste. $10,000 were just poured into the major refit, and the ship was carrying 1,701 barrels of denatured alcohol, which isn't like drinking alcohol. It's like a used as a solvent for like alcohol burners or like now you would use them for like camping stoves, shit like that. Due to the weather conditions at the time, the ship was anchored just off the coast of Staten Island for two days until there was more favorable weather. At the same time that Mary Celeste set sail, the brigantine De Gradia was in Hoboken, New Jersey to transport petroleum to Genoa via Gibraltar. There was speculation that Captain David Morehouse of the De Gradia knew Captain Benjamin Briggs, with varying degrees of how close they were. Some believe that they had a meeting over dinner just prior to Mary Celeste's departure. De Gradia's voyage for Gibraltar began on November 15th, just eight days after the Mary Celeste. 
A month later, on December 5th, De Gradia came across the Mary Celeste. Captain David Morehouse sent two crewmen to the ship to investigate. Since the sails were all out of order and the ship had erratic movements and there was no response to his signals as the Celeste was approaching, getting closer and closer to their ship. There was no one aboard the Mary Celeste. It was completely deserted. The ship wasn't in a perilous condition when it was found. The sails were partly set, some were missing, the rigging was damaged, and the ropes were hanging loosely over the side. The lifeboat was missing when it was found. There was three and a half feet of water in the hold, which would be significant, but not alarming based off of the size of the ship. The final log entry on the ship was dated at 8 a.m. on November 25th. Mary Celeste's position was off Santa Maria Island in Azaros, nearly 400 nautical miles from where the De Gradia had discovered her. There were no obvious signs of foul play on the ship, and the missing lifeboat and missing crew indicated that they had willingly departed. But the biggest question has been, why? The De Gradia had salvaged the ship and brought it to Gibraltar, where she was immediately impounded and had to undergo salvage hearings to investigate what had happened and to determine the settlements, which are determined based off of the rescued ship's combined value of the actual ship plus any cargo that it's carrying at the time. Under maritime law, a salver could expect substantial share of the combined value of the vessel and the cargo, but in this case... The details surrounding the mysterious discovery of the ship and the state raised concerns of possible conspiracy, whether the family and crew were killed or covered up the fact that they were killed, if the logbook was doctored or like fraudulent in any way, if it was insurance fraud, or if it was all a scheme to steal alcohol that was on the ship. With no concrete evidence to support their suspicions, the court came to a final agreement of one-fifth of the total value of the ship and the cargo, which was a pretty low-ball estimate due to the circumstances. Over the years, there have been theories and tales that spread of this infamous ghost ship, but no one can say for sure they definitely know what happened to the crew or why. Were they forced off the ship? Murdered? Were these two captains friends and just in it for the money? Was the ship in danger at sea due to a sea quake, alcohol explosion, sea monsters, or even pirates? A kraken. The world may never know. That's it. And that is it, sir. <laughs> it's an unsolved mystery. I do declare. <laughs> Although the SS Antonia Graza was not a real ship, it did have real-life inspiration. The design for the ship was modeled after the Andrea Doria, which suffered its own tragic fate. The Andrea Doria was an Italian ocean liner, the largest, fastest, and safest ship of its time. Until July 25th of 1956, when approaching the coast of Nantucket, Massachusetts, collided with Swedish American Line. When the Andrea Doria was struck on the side, the ship was too top-heavy and caused it to lean heavily on its starboard side, making half of the lifeboats unusable. Within the 11 hours of the ship sinking, the crew was able to keep calm. 1,660 passengers and crew members survived. Only 46 had died to the initial impact of the collision. They used a 35-foot model of the Andrea Doria when creating the Antonia Graza seen in Ghost Ship. 
So the exterior shots were a combination of CGI and miniature live action footage. A lot of the scenes were filmed on Queen Mary when it was moored and being used as a hotel in Long Beach, California. Although the Antonio Graza was a combination of models and CGI, the Arctic Warrior, seen in the movie, was a real tugboat. A majority of the film was shot in Queensland, Australia. While filming the shots on the tugboat, they got to experience feeding frenzies which is 800 to 1,000 sharks within 50 yards of where they were filming. Oh. Much yikes. One of the only what I would say is a noticeable flaw with the storyline of the film that you kind of overlook while you're watching it is the fact that, sure, they're shooting in Australia, so it would make sense to be in cargo pants, t-shirts, tank tops. Ebbs always has this rough, tough, Tomb Raider look about her, or the rest of the crew, they look sweaty and they're like listening. But in the actual storyline, the ship that they're recovering is off the Bering Strait, which would actually be pretty nipply. Cold. (laughs) Water temperatures on the surface average from 34 to 41 degrees Fahrenheit, or 1 degree Celsius to 5 degrees Celsius if that's so cold cold as fuck (laughs) and during the year the period without frost lasts about like 80 days in the northern part of the sea where snow is common even in the summertime and maximum temperatures even then are only at like 68 degrees so how she's not like freezing running around in a t-shirt or like nonetheless survives in the water for who the fuck ever knows how long before she's rescued is beyond me so just a little One little flaw. Yeah. That is one that I will validate and say, okay, the temperature. Yikes. So in the movie, once the Arctic warrior discovers the SS Antonia Graza, everything gets fucking bananas. They all start seeing ghosts, but don't believe each other. Epps finds a safe of recently dead bodies, then immediately finds a fuck ton of gold in a mailroom. The crew decides to load up the gold and bail because the boat is creepy as fuck. When loading up the gold on the Arctic Warrior, chaos ensues, blows up, and killing Santos, thus leaving them abandoned on the hellboat as their only way out. While they're stuck on the ship, everyone is getting a little bit crazier by the minute. Greer is trying to get fucked by a ghost. Dodge and Munder are eating cans of maggots. Epps is hanging out with a ghost girl, Katie, just zipping through time and space and whoever the fuck, while Murphy, a recovering alcoholic, decides to kick it with a ghost captain and drink some old-ass scotch. The ghost captain tells Murphy that the Antonio Graza rescued a ship called the Lorelei. Rescuing the ship is what eventually led to the demise of the Antonio Graza, taking aboard the cursed gold and one passenger. And this was just another cute little nautical tale snuck into the movie. Die Lorelei was a German poem by Heinrich Heine about how mermaids and sirens lure sailors to their deaths, kind of like how the Lorelei led the Antonia Graza to theirs. It's a poem, so you damn skippy know I have it right here (laughs) and I'm about to read it. All right. I don't know what it means that I'm so sad. A legend of bygone days that I cannot keep out of my mind. The air is cool and the night is coming. The calm Rhine courses its way. The peak of the mountain dazzles with evening's final ray. The fairest of maidens is sitting up there a beautiful delight. Her golden jewels are shining. She's combing her golden hair. 
She holds a golden comb, singing along as well, an enthralling and spellbinding melody. In his little boat, the boatman is seized by it with a savage will. He does not look upon the rocky ledge, but rather high up to the heavens. I think that the waves will devour the boatman and the boat in the end, and this by her song's sheer power, fair Lorelei has done. Kind of poetic. I thought that's cute. Yeah. As always, hitting us with the um, uplifting and very happy poems. <laughs> I love dark poetry. <laughs> now that I reached my poetry quota, that sole survivor, in case you don't remember, was Jack Ferryman. Let's take a little bit of a closer look at this guy that brings the whole story together. He's a soul-collecting demon who made a deal with the devil to fill the ship with souls to ferry back to hell, or he would have to deal with his sins with an eternity of suffering. Which is for sure a (laughs) no-fucking-brainer. Keep on with your hell-raising self, or be tortured for the rest of your time. I mean, which would you pick? 10 out of 10, raise hell, bitch. (laughs) His name was actually inspired by Greek mythology Charon the Ferryman a spirit who collected souls to cross the river Styx that divided the world of the living to Hades and the world of the dead. Also, the painting at the end of the Grand Hall is inspired by Michelangelo's depiction of Caron in the Last Judgment fresco. Although it shows Poseidon instead of Caron, the position and the painting arrangements are pretty much the same. Nearing the end of the movie, all the pieces start coming together. Following the flashbacks of what happened to the Lorelei and the Antonia Graza, and as Jack's identity unravels, Jack tells Epps that only the souls of the sinners can be readily controlled. And you can see this even tracking back in the 1960s, the crew killing everyone for gold and their own greedy desires. Even our girl, Francesca Rotondini, killing because she was hooked on Jack. Uh-huh, I see what you did there. Because she got that huge-ass hook in her face. In her face. <laughs> Yikes. Fucking worst breakup ever. Yeah, ooh. I guess you could say she got ghosted. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, That was good. Thank you. You're so punny. Thank you. I tried my best. (laughs) Then looking at many of the Arctic Warrior crew members, their deaths revolve around their own specific sins. Looking at Greer, he was giving into lust when seduced by Francesca's ghost. Murphy, giving into his alcoholism. Munder lost a bet of rock, paper, scissors to unclog the pump. So, like, gambling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they gambled whenever they did the um, eating the food. Dodge killed Jack on the bridge, though that last one is debatable because Dodge acted in self-defense. And a necessary evil like being forced to kill someone to save yourself or someone else is not considered sinful. And what I fucking love the most about Ghost Ship, it's kind of all focused on the little things that bring it all together. Just rewatch it after this episode. Like, what should have first been a big red flag if it wasn't already is the fact that this random dude fucking finds this crew at a bar. Never worked with them before. Knows their names. Like, how did he come to find them? And just shows them a map like, hey, this might be a ship if you want to go check it out for me. I don't feel like that's a normal everyday occurrence at a bar. Unless you are a demon. (laughs) (laughs) And if you pay attention to how Jack reacts when Epps talks about seeing a little ghost girl, Katie, he's always pretty pissy about it. 
And looking even further, before the Arctic warrior blows up, Katie is seen trying to warn them. But you see someone tackle this ghost girl, which would be Jack. Who else would fucking <laughs> tackle a ghost girl or could? Yeah. Which is just like a little detail snippet that was just like tossed in there that I feel yeah. like not everyone catches at the first glance. Or when Epps is in Katie's room and Katie starts to vaguely explain what the fuck is going on without saying any specific names and the walls start to go black, warning her to stop talking. You can see Katie holds up her right hand and she exclaims, but I'm not like the others, like holding her hand very weirdly, like out flat. It's such a small but important detail here is that she's holding up her hand to show that she isn't marked. All the other sinful souls that are going to be ferried to hell have a hook on their right hand, which is why you see this on Santos's hand. After he's burned up haunting Murphy, there's a close-up on his hand holding a knife. You might initially think it's just to emphasize the knife, but the hook mark is what you're supposed to be focusing on. Children are supposed to represent pure innocence and free of sin. So when Jack later says that he can't control the innocent ones or are marked, that's why Katie has been able to try and warn them. All the others can be controlled to help him get his way, like using Francesca to lure Greer to his death. And I think that's why there's so many mixed reviews. The movie does have good detail for the plotline, but you have to look past the misdirection of the opening scene, or even the title for that matter, Ghost Ship. At the beginning, you're directed with the backstory of the Antonia Graza, that they were lost at sea and never heard from again. So that's what you focus on, instead of it literally just being sole transportation ship. Most of the scenes that catch your attention don't necessarily spell out why or how it fits into the big picture. It's more in the small details that really brings it all together. The important parts are so downplayed throughout the movie that they're not really rememberable. So when it's revealed, it doesn't feel like it has that wow factor. But if you watch it from the perspective of a demon on a mission to turn his crew against each other, which he's already done at least three times before from what we've seen in this movie alone, and this measly girl thinks that she can just swim off to a happy ending, nah, bitch, he told you he was a demon working nine to five. Gotta get them souls for Satan. <laughs> I'm a supporter of the working class. He's just trying to get some souls, man. Yeah, I mean, you don't know his job. Yeah, you, you heard it here quota. first. <laughs> you heard it here first. The true meaning behind the movie Ghost Ship. Work hard. Play hard. You just gotta do what you love. If you look at the reviews for Ghost Ship, it's kind of disappointing. Like, on Rotten Tomatoes, I think it only has, like, three stars. And what pissed me off the other day, looking at ratings, they're kind of bullshit. Prime example, Repo Man, The Genetic oh, Opera. God. I probably got terrible reviews, right? Terrible. Yeah. It's bad. It's like, I think it was like two or three stars around the same par as Ghost Ship, maybe yeah. like a hair better. But like on Roku, like, you know how they have free movies on yeah. it? It was at one star. I'm like, fuck you guys. Like, prime. Yeah. Freaking movie. I think Ghost Ship is awesome. Right? That's what I'm saying. I understand that it's not for everybody, but also the same aspect. It's like, it's a... It's a very original idea. Yeah. It was a great watch. Mm. 10 out of 10. Mm. Would recommend. Yes. And so this was my might be kind of deep dive into Behind the Horror and Inspirations of Ghost Ship. 
I don't care what reviews say. I fucking love this movie and still do. Yep. I hope you guys liked it. If you loved this deep dive as much as me, you can write us a sweet-ass review on iTunes, Stitcher, Podchaser, CastBox, or rate us on your streaming apps. Please. (laughs) Check out our socials on Instagram, Facebook, maybe Twitter someday. Someday. Everyone can dream. (laughs) And don't forget, you can pre-send your questions to get to know the burrito to thecreepyburrito at gmail.com or just tune in to do it live on Facebook January 13th, 8pm Eastern Standard Time. Be there or be square. Mm, Until next week. (laughs) (laughs) Now. Come back next week to get lost in that sauce with us. Same creepy time, same creepy channel. And on that note, <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> Robot Shelby signing off. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Okay. Bye. Oh, no. Bye. 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 I wasn't sure if we would get in trouble for it. I mean, maybe, but who cares? No one even listens to us. They're not even going to find us. How are they going to know? How are they going to know? They're never going to know. They're not going to (laughs) know. Unless they love the creepy burrito and they're like, we're going to sue you guys. They're going to be like, fuck you. We have $15 on our bias (laughs) coffee account. And we're just going to (laughs) vanish. Bye. Fucking love it.